Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the thing we, things we can all do to live a better life as we uh, set out on a journey today, episode 2764 of the Survival Podcast. Is that insane or what? It is Friday, 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 so it's time for Expert Council Q&A. For 10, 23, 20, if you want to be on a show like this, you want one of these amazing people, this, this group of people that we are so blessed to have uh, serving us here, to answer one of your questions, send me the question, jack at the survivalpodcast.com. In the subject line, include TSPC expert. In the body of the email, the first thing you should do is say, my question is for expert council member, fill in the blank here. If you want to send it to multiple experts, that's fine, too. Then you should say, my question is, and then your question should appear next. I know that sounds crazy. It sounds totally irrational. But your question should appear as a single sentence followed by a question mark like they taught you in grade school. And it should be a single, my question is, blah, 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 question mark. Then you may hit return and you may give as much detail as you feel is necessary. And the more you give at that point... In some instances, anyway, probably the better. However, if you do not follow this format, there'll be a good chance that you will spend a lot of time asking a question and you don't even know what your question is. So I don't know what your question is. So the expert council member doesn't know what your question is, and then we don't answer it. Or worse, we think we know what the question is, and we answer it the wrong way. Trust me, I am a professional. I have been doing this for a very long time. Again, this is episode 2764. When a dude does something over 2,000 times, he gets pretty decent at it, even if he's not that great. And I'm, I'm amazing. I'm, I, I'm kidding. I'm, I'm pretty good, though, right? Trust me on this one. All right. It is also October 30th, and that means the next time that we speak to each other and hear from each other, it will be November. Yes, it will be the second to the last month of the year. The first month of the last quarter of 2020 is gone. And, yeah, this has been a rough year for, for people in a lot of ways. But in a lot of ways, it's been a year of a lot of opportunity, too. It doesn't matter whether there's a pandemic going on or not. The clock never stops ticking. Tick-tock. Tick-tock. The clock ticks for us all. Let's lead off today's show with a quote that I, I really wish I would have found this quote like back in March when all this crazy COVID shit started. This is from one of my favorite authors of all time. I'll admit I haven't read him for a very, very long time. This was a guy that I loved reading as a teenager. Um, he was up there with authors that are more from the, the hunting world for me, like Robert Rourke and uh, Peter Hathaway Capstick, uh, uh, people like that, or the works of uh, Teddy Roosevelt long before he was president. Um, it was in league with that, right? Ernest Hemingway. Um Though this guy wrote all novels instead of biographical and, and things like that. And it is Jack London. Jack London was just one of my favorite kind of escape books to read. While other kids were reading Lord of the Rings, I was reading books by Jack London. And uh, in fact, one of my, uh, my, one of my favorite little historical plants. And an episode of Star Trek was the one where they did time travel back, and, and, and Mark Twain was in it. And there's a kid in it that's working as a bellhop at a hotel in San Francisco. 
and just for one second after he's you know kind of scamming on all the things he can figure out how to do with his life, he says, "Remember my remember the name Jack Jack London," and Jack London did work as a bellhop at a hotel in San Francisco when he was very young. So I thought that was cool. Anyway, here's what he said, and this was said so long ago. But it so applies to the mindset that people have in fear of the coronavirus. Jack said, The proper function of man is to live, not to exist. I shall not waste my days in trying to prolong them. I shall use my time. Wow. You know, a lot of times I have commentary on a quote. I don't need any commentary on that quote. It either makes sense to you or it doesn't. I said today when I shared it on social media... This quote will resonate deeply with about half of America, and the other half really needs to hear it. Anyway, I usually save my T-SPAS segment for the end of the episode. This stuff's time-sensitive. Some of you guys, I know, don't get through the whole episode, so I'm going to move it to the front. Remember, you can always support this show by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. Do not skip this today. Do not do it. I know some of you are like, I don't need to hear it. You need to hear this. Uh, the, the post today is not an individual deal of the day. The title of the post I did today is Deals, Deals, and Deals on T-SPAS today. That is T-S-P-A-Z.com. Never forget that. Always start your shopping there online. You help support us. But three items are on sale today on great deals. Number one, the DeWalt Impact Driver and uh, Drill, the, the brushless set. The one that if you buy the drill alone, it's over $200. The whole set's on sale for 190 bucks. This is the one that was on sale for like 194 bucks a couple weeks ago. I said the Walt doesn't do this often. They don't. And something weird's going on. You can check the price on this thing one minute and it's 190 bucks. You check the price on it and the next minute it's it's 204 dollars. You check it again, it's 194 dollars. It moves around. They're running some sort of algorithm. I imagine they have some sort of goal to sell some number of sets or something like that going on. I guess when you're that big, you can probably do things within the Amazon system that a normal peon like me, if I was selling on Amazon, couldn't do. But that's the only way that I can make sense of this. But it's been pretty stable since about nine o'clock. It's 115 right now. I'm going to check. Uh, of course, you're listening to it way later than this. But it's now it's 199. So it was 190 five minutes ago, and it's 199 right now. And who knows what it'll be? The list price on it is 319 bucks. Anything under about 210 dollars is a steal on this. And you know, I just wanted to add this. I put this, and you can look it up in the write up today on it if you want to uh, on the website. But if you want to, if you want to say, well, I'm a Milwaukee guy, a rigid guy over DeWalt. I won't argue with you. Uh, you know, if you're uh, Makita makes good tools, uh, and, and I'm sure Bosch makes good tools. There's plenty of tools out there that are great cordless tools, and they're all priced in and around the same level. And personal preference is fine there. I will not argue with you. But people always say shit to me like, oh, "I just use Harbor Freight. They're just as good." No, they're not. They're garbage. Harbor Freight makes some decent stuff for what it is in certain niches. Do not invest in cordless power tools in off-brands. They're junk. There is a link here from a guy uh, on YouTube. This guy's crazy. He's like this Canadian dude. He's uh, the, the guy, I mean, you'll roll laughing listening to his reviews, but he's like an engineering-level guy, takes the tools completely apart, shows all the parts, and he shows one where he takes apart a Harbor Freight earthquake and shows you what a piece of shit it really is and why it will fail. And I'm telling you, Harbor Freight cordless tools are not half the price of DeWalt when they're on sale at this price. 
And their batteries are stupid expensive, and their batteries are garbage in more than one way. I'll leave it at that. If you want a low-end cordless power tool, like the cheapest you can buy that's not total shit, look to Porter Cable, and I'll tell you their one weakness, their skill saws, the circular saw, whatever you want to call it. It's shit. It doesn't have power. It doesn't have any ass behind it. Other than that, they make the best lower-priced cordless tools you can get, in my opinion, but I wouldn't buy them. I do have their... Uh, They're, they're cordless brad nailers, and I love them because they're the only people that make anything that good anywhere near that price. But uh, otherwise, go with higher ends. Now, real quick, the other two things that are on sale today. E-Tech City has their four-pack of LED lanterns on sale. That's four of them for $28. Or they have a two-pack on sale for $15. Those are both great deals. Uh, you can look to learn more uh, in the write-up today, but they are one of the best additions to your blackout kit. They are great for gifts to non-prepper types that need to be prepared in some way. No one ever said, I have too much backup lighting. Uh, they last a long time. They come with the batteries. The batteries would cost almost as much as damn lanterns if you bought batteries separately. Um, I'm telling you, they're a great deal. I've sold thousands of those through T-SPAS, I've never heard a complaint about E-Tech City. Next up, again, sold thousands of these. Those Q10 Bluetooth headphones that were on sale earlier this week, they're back. Anchor has the red and black ones on sale for $23.79. These are a $50 set. It's more than half off. This is also one of those. The price keeps moving around and changing. I don't know what's going on. Um, it seemed to stabilize when they put up a thing that said your delivery will be somewhere between uh, November 16 and November 21. So I guess that they have like a big stocking order come in and that let them go ahead and fulfill all the demand that they have for this product at this price. At 23 bucks, do you even care that you won't get it till November? Again, a great gift item to chalk off the list early. I love these things. I use mine all the time. I got a set for my wife when I bought them. She's like, eh, and now I got a set for her. I have and my, my grandson uses them uh, with his schoolwork. It's they're fantastic. At the price, they're just fantastic. With that, let's, let's go ahead and dive into uh, our expert panel segment today. Sorry to go long on that, but man, when you get three deals like that, I don't want you guys to miss out, and that's a good reason to be on the Telegram list. Um, if you were on my Telegram channel, which means you only hear from me on Telegram, not everybody else, you would have gotten that alert at about 10 o'clock this morning, and you would have gotten the best price possible on the DeWalt, just for one example. I know that may not matter today, but whatever's next, it might matter. So get on the Telegram channel. All right, so first question of the day. I sent this one to Ben Falk. Just wanted to drum some stuff up for him. We haven't heard from him for a while. I got people up today that you will not have heard from in a while. I got Ben Falk. I got Jeff Lawton. Doc Bones, we hear from him all the time. He's all reliable. Uh, keyword on old. Uh, Mike and Sue Lepreze, which we hear from often. We haven't heard from Walt. Keith Snow, we haven't heard much from him lately. And then I've got a segment for you today that's on Crypto Card from Coinbase. Uh, what makes it different? So Coinbase announced this new cryptocurrency card. What makes it different and where this is all going and uh, what I see coming next like this. All right. With that, Ben Falk, on transitioning from your nice warm winter in, I'm uh, sorry, Mark, nice warm winter, nice warm summer and pleasant fall into brrr, the brutal cold of winter. Hey, Jack and all. Ben Falk with Whole Systems Design. Some thoughts about transitioning to winter here um, in the northern regions. I'm at Latitude 42 in central Vermont. As some of you know, it's zone four or so, hardiness zone. So a bit colder than where most of you live, I think, but 
not as cold as some of you. Um, there's a lot to do always with each seasonal transition, especially summer to winter. And that's the big one really right now. So I find myself just constantly putting things away. It's easy to really get caught with your pants down and have just things kind of disappear into the snow and not know where they are until spring. That happens early on for a lot of people setting up a homestead because it's just chaos in the first, especially entering the first winter and usually for a year or two thereafter, unless you're lucky to have a barn, some nice outbuildings on site and covered outdoor space, which you can covered space, which you can never have too much of. Uh, the only thing handier than a, than a barn is a really huge barn. And, uh, in, in pretty much any climate, especially cold, wet climates. Um, so we're just, you know, putting everything away. I'm mulching all my vegetable beds, trying to make sure everything's covered this year. It's so easy to leave soil bare going into the winter. And, uh, then you just get weed seeds in there more. The ground freezes. You get erosion, um, much more if it's exposed to all the winter rains and snows and, um, also, you know, if you cover everything, you can overwinter carrots, especially in the ground, uh, with garlic's in, that was in about a week and a half ago, a little later than I shoot for, but it's nice to have it poke up, I think, at the very beginning of spring, because it's so cold hardy and starts making energy, you get bigger bulbs, people think, uh, some people like to plant like Halloween, I think that's fine in a warmer climate than us, but I think that's a bit too late in our zone. Got all the garlic in about a hundred and maybe thirty cloves, which is enough for us pretty much. Um, garlic seeds been sold out for a long time. Seed garlic, not that you can't plant good organic garlic, you can. Um, but as with everything, there's been a run on all the seeds. Um, I'm trying to today get um, some compost sifted because it's easy to have all the compost potting mix frozen in March, February, March, when you want to be putting some trays in the greenhouse. And so you want to sift that compost now uh, and store it in a bag. You know, a nice like feed bag is great because it doesn't it doesn't get too too wet, it doesn't stay too wet, but it doesn't get hydrophobically dry, which is a nightmare to try to re-wet again, as many have experienced. So I try to do that this time of year or by now. I've got a bunch sifted, but I, I probably should do some more. Make sure all the compost is covered. Make sure all the compost piles are weeded so weed seed isn't going into that. <clears throat> Firewood's been put up since April, May. That's, you want it, you know, it takes a whole summer to dry. I've palletized my firewood now. That's really helpful so I can just deliver it with a tractor to where I'm using it. It saves me one full stacking. I think I have some of that in a YouTube video. I still need to put away some watering stuff. Um, I'm literally looking out the window right now at everything. Um, I've got a nice kind of drip irrigation system I did this year finally because it was drought. It kind of forced me to do it. Um, but um, so I still got to get like the manifold, the whole piece of plywood where the control system on that put away. Uh, for the winter and drain everything, all the shallow lines. Um, still got to get frost rehydrant to one of our greenhouses so I have winter water. Um, I'm going to start covering up everything in the greenhouse under Rime so I can overwinter arugula and cilantro and parsley 
and spinach, so it comes up again. We can eat some in the winter, and then it really comes up fast in like February, March, versus being from seed, where like weeks and weeks ahead of that, months in some ways. Going to get into logging season here soon. Um, But, you know, the biggest thing is making sure all the garden beds are covered, making sure everything's put away. I've also tarped next year squash spaces like on the leach field and any grass areas that I actually want to grow squash out of. I tarped a bunch of weeks ago. Ideally, it would have been like a month or two ago. Um, kill the grass, APDM membrane, like they're not really tarps, they're like rubber membranes. Scraps from building ponds and roofing are so useful. I like to joke in my permaculture course, buy a pallet of EPDM, a scrap, a pallet of scrap EPDM. It's actually a permaculture principle applies to anyone anywhere. It's just have scrap EPDM around. It's so valuable, but, uh, maybe it's not quite a principle, more of a strategy, but, um, there's very few people who wouldn't find a lot of uses for that stuff. Um, covering wood, lumber, definitely killing grass. Occlusion is the best. If you can kill grass the year before, cover crop it or just tarp it with at least a month or two of pretty warm weather left nuke the grass and then have it covered at least a while into spring next year and really have that sod dead then you just a bucket of compost on top pull that back bucket of compost in per um, squash mound and I will start those squash in the greenhouse so they get further along which is really helpful with squash with cucumber beetle squash beetle and so we'll have some of next spring, too, to, to kill that grass. So I laid those down a few weeks ago. Should have done it maybe a month and a half ago, ideally. Couldn't couldn't hurt if it was all summer. That would totally be dead for sure. But it, it'll be dead probably at this point. Um, you know, saving seeds, kind of done with the last bit of seed harvesting, calendula seed and some other seed that's been out. And then... Um, I've been putting up, you know, tree seed. You know, they really just finished falling in our part of the world. Walnuts. Someone's mailing me hickories because we didn't have any here this year. Uh, acorns. So putting that up for food and also for seed. All that's going in the root cellar. I harvested the last bit of carrots yesterday to go in the root cellar before it starts to get really into the mid-20s or below, which can damage the carrots, e- e- even damage those, which... Um, I actually mulch even some salad greens this year and some uh, cutbacks, some uh, chard, and then we'll mulch that. And that stuff can survive the winter easily up here under under solid mulch. I use planer shavings, sawdust, if you know it's not from glue materials, from my own wood shop. Chopped up leaves are amazing, and I, I probably collected four barrels of those. Uh, but that didn't cover the whole bed or the whole garden. Some stuff, there's a lot more, but that's some... Uh, some uh, thoughts right now good luck everyone good stuff and good food for thought from ben as always uh, next up probably the most well recognized well known and i would say in my opinion the best permaculture designer in the world today jeff lawton uh, i had a question for him uh, from an individual with a small urban lot looking to do a design and kind of sanity check it and i asked jeff to help the guy uh, out loud and you know with some consulting but also to try to generalize it a little bit to help you th- a little, little bit more of how to think about your property even though it might be somewhat different jeff take it away hi this is jeff lawton here coming to you from australia and uh, we have a consultancy kind of question here in relation to a um, 
a small property, uh, urban property, um, which has um, uh, the owner wanting to zone it out and put it into production. So um, just asking whether he's on the right track, really. And um, they've um, never grown a garden. And um, they have been listening to the the uh, um, survival podcast, and uh, they've uh, sent us in a map here, and they've attached some zones, and um, they've more or less um, come up with uh, five zones. And they're not in the permaculture order, but that's okay; they're quite understandable. And um, they've put in that uh, zone one, which is near the front gate on the road and near the driveway. And zone four, which is between two buildings, they'd like to keep grass for family uh, relaxation, throwing a ball around um, and um, uh, with the kids. And um, that's fine. That'll work. That's fine. Um, Then they've gone into zone five for fruit trees, which is right at the back of the property. It's the largest zone. Um, they want to put in fruit trees, uh, chicken, and uh, maybe a goat or two. Um, what I would advise here <coughs> would be a no lawn um, food forest, so all ground covers, uh, pathways, and uh, minimum pathways, but enough that you can you've got about no more than um, six or eight feet between the pathway and the outside of the property and no more than six or eight feet between beds. So basically you could probably, by the look of it, get away with one circular pathway uh, going around um, the inside, but just staying six or eight feet off the boundary. Um, But on one boundary, I would put in a chicken tractor on steroids, which is a composting chicken tractor. So put your chickens to work. Um, and uh, they can have a nice cosy uh, house for winter, uh, which can be full of uh, deep litter mulch. And in summer months, they can be outside because this is quite a cool climate in winter in Utah, up high, quite high, quite good altitude. Um, but uh, if you put in a chicken tractor on steroids, all you have to do is uh, buy in some manure and put in there like cow or horse manure, cheap as you can get. Uh, one third manure, one third green prunings or grass clippings or weeds, and one third dry carbon, which could be wood chip or could be autumn leaves that you've got uh, on supply or bagged up. Um, and if you do that um, just over a cubic yard each time, one third manure, one third greens, which can include food scraps, and one third um brand high carbon material let the chickens turn it over let the chickens move it around then put it back together once a week uh five weeks later you've got a pretty good casual compost that'll become that'll become like the the um, engine of fertility for the whole garden and even if you don't pull it off every five weeks if you do it regularly um, you'll really improve the garden you'll fertilize all your fruit trees and all your veggies with that compost let the chickens Scratch it around and disassemble it and reassemble it um, every week for five weeks and you'll end up with something that looks pretty damn good. Okay, so that that can fit into that zone five with the food forest. If I was going to go goats, that would give you some of the manure supplies for sure. I'd go dwarf Nigerian because they're really easy. They're very fertile. Uh, they often have twins, can have triplets, even quads, and have been known to have quins, but that's pretty rare. But you're going to get, um, you're going to get, 
usually at least twins and they're quite sellable. Now, these are the best milking goats. They're miniature. They have the best casing quality of milk. So it's very high quality milk. Um, doesn't taste like goat's milk. Doesn't taste like uh, uh, goat's milk. Often tastes a little bit like the way male goats smell, kind of. These are not like that. It's a very creamy milk. If you're making soap with it, it almost goes solid before you finish the process. Um, great quality milk. Little goat, easy to fence. And... Um, you can almost uh, take them for a walk on a lead like a dog. They're cute um, and they're great. So I go uh, dwarf Nigerian. Um, I go for a big breed of chickens because they'd handle the winter. Um, good egg layers, dual purpose if you want to eat them, if not just egg layers. But make sure they're making compost for you. And uh, grass-free uh, food forest or your assembly of, of cool climate fruit trees there. Um, and some support species that fix nitrogen you can chop and drop and add to the compost. Uh, mulch the whole thing with paper and straw to start off with. and uh, Leave your foot pass, mulch those with uh, paper, but f- cover them with wood chip or, or uh, um, fine gravel and uh, get that started. Zone 5's um, no problem, be a lovely area um, right at the back there. Zone 2... Um, and he says he doesn't know what to do with it, um, like it to be maintenance-free as possible. Um, and um, zone two and four, which is where they're going to throw a ball around, we'd like them to be expansions of zone three, when zone three is a vegetable garden. So uh, he's not sure whether to divide it into... into um, um, Beds or one large garden with footpaths. Um, I think you should do raised beds. Raised beds are definitely easier. Uh, buy some cheap raised beds. You can get them like roofing iron raised beds or some kind of pre-purchased uh, raised bed garden. Bring in some good soil and compost and garden in raised beds. Um, so the raised bed is well away from the footpath. And then you can... Um, it's easier to keep the footpath mowed or... or um, um, weed cut, um, strimmed, or 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 or, uh, uh, or you can put gravel. Though um, you haven't got, if you've got high raised beds, you haven't got much interference from the footpath and maintenance on that edge. You've got a hard surface to to maintain against. Um, so you've got a good position. Zone three, it looks like um, it's got good good light. Uh, you need good light for a garden. And it's going to be easier if you're successful in Zone 3 to expand into Zone 4 and expand into Zone 2. Now, really, Zone 2 could be an extension of Zone 1 and keep it open. Or you could extend it into hardy fruit trees or more ornamental fruit trees. Now, here, if you don't want that, you know, food forest wild look at the front, you could have specific fruit tree planting guilds. So you could have a large bed, let's say eight to ten foot across, and plant it to a food forest guild and then mow around it. So you could have two or three of those and leave the remainder as lawn that you can mow and use that mulch with your chickens to make compost. So more of an ornamental 
Um, Food Forest gilding bed out the front. They're in zone two. Zone one and four are throwing a ball around for now. Can be expansions of three. Three nice raised beds separate that footpath, those footpaths from the garden. So you don't have a maintenance hassle between the garden and the footpath. Um, if they can be quite high, like two or three feet high is the best. So anywhere you can do that, you've got that big vertical separation. Fill them up with good soil and compost. Buy that in. Buy some good soil, good compost. Fill them right in. Mulch them. Um, I'd paper and mulch to start with. Um, and um, deep mulch, good straw, good six inches thick, uh, two inches of solid compost um, on the on, on top of the newspaper, and then your thick um, mulch on top of that. Plant in pockets of compost and you'll be away. Don't make it too complicated. You could put in a worm farm as well and get worm juice every day by putting a gallon of water in and emptying a gallon of juice out the bottom. Every day that gallon of water will go through and make a gallon of juice. You just replace the gallon of juice over the worm farm, pour it into the worm farm. Over a few hours that gallon of juice comes out, water comes out as worm juice. Every three months you've got... Um, the worm, worm garden, uh, uh, the worm farm that empty. These are compost worms, not earthworms. In America, you call them earthworm farms. They're not earthworms. They don't live in the soil. They're compost worms, actually. It's, it's, it's wrongly named, but it's the same worms. You buy them from, you know, worms for a worm farm. You can use a bath. You can see some of my videos on how to, how to set up a worm farm with a bath. You can do it with a big laundry sink if you don't, yeah, you don't want one so big. That is a whole load of extra nutrient cycling. You need nutrient cycling. You need diversity of plantings. You need annuals as well as perennials. That's plants that live for a, for a season and plants that continuously live year after year, along with trees that live year after year. That diversity makes a big difference. Um, you can plant up some trellises. You can use some vertical space. That all makes a big difference. So you can see some of this stuff in my videos. I explain it. There's a new one just coming out, a Q&A video just about to be launched about my six best bets, best approaches to small permaculture gardens. What are the, the, the six most important elements? So I think you've chosen your zones well. Um, and um, I think it, it could really uh, improve the value of the house. Uh, most of these things do today in this new reality that we're in this new normal um the value is going on um uh, land that's managed in a way that gives us some healthy benefit um so um should be good let me know how you go um i oh you are saying here um being that it's dead hard um do i need to uh, rent a tiller and, and turn the ground um, and begin with, with you know, rotary hoeing the ground. Well, in zone five, I would, to get yourself started out there, um, I, I, would, I would till the ground first. And uh, I'd broad fork it as well, if you can, if you get wet enough weather to broad fork. So till and broad fork. Broad fork's a big double handle sort of garden spade, huge one, that'll, that'll decompact quite a long way down. So I'd do that before any planting of fruit trees out in zone two and zone five. But in zone three, I wouldn't bother too much with that. I'd just get up high in nice, good, high raised beds 
Um, so it's easy to easy to really uh, manage. There you go. That's my take on your zones. Well done. I think it'll be great. Uh, this next one is a uh, is a very serious question. It actually came in yesterday. It was serious enough that Bones immediately answered it, and I kicked it to the top of the queue uh, because I thought it was important. And I've already communicated directly with the individual asking it, and uh, I'm sure he'll hear this today as well, which will be helpful. But I also thought there probably are other people dealing with this very serious issue of excessive alcohol consumption. And there's different levels of intervention required, but sometimes intervention is required. I feel like that's where this is. Uh, but in the end, people have to make their own decisions. So here we go, Bones on that, and I'll come back with some follow-up on it. Hi, Joe Alton, MD here, also known as Dr. Bones of the survival medicine website doomandbloom.net, author of books like the Survival Medicine Handbook, Alton's Antibiotics and Infectious Disease, and Alton's Pandemic Preparedness Guide. Today's question for the expert counsel comes from Bob, who writes, What are good ways to get out of the constant alcohol cycle? My name is Bob. Had a very close death in the family and over a few years spiraled down. Now it's heavy vodka every night, sometimes Irish coffee in the morning. While very functional, this cannot go on for much longer. My first thought was switch to beer, but after so long, it doesn't do anything, and inevitably, I switch back to the vodka. Not sure it's safe to quit cold turkey, but when I tried, I don't know what to do with myself. I watch a ton of garbage TV, read books, mind keeps racing, can't sleep. I know benzos are a help, but very dangerous. I'm sure a lot of homesteader listeners can relate and slip into this state. People think it's so easy. Yeah, just stop drinking. If you could recommend a strategy or even some supplements to break this cycle, I will be forever in your debt. Bob, your problem is complicated and rarely something you can get through all by yourself. You're going to need help. And going cold turkey, honestly, is not only nearly impossible in your situation, but could also be dangerous. Still, continuing to drink is even more dangerous in the long run, and you've got to take control of your life and stop drinking completely. There are medicines that, under your doctor's supervision, can help what's called alcohol use disorder, or AUD. Acamprosate, Campral, Disulfiram, Antabuse, and Naltrexone, Vivitrol. These are prescription medications that are used to help you stop drinking or sustain an abstinent lifestyle. Vivitrol combats cravings while blocking the receptors in the brain that are activated by alcohol to stimulate feelings of pleasure associated with drinking. Disulfiram, or antabuse, creates an adverse reaction if you introduce alcohol into the system. It makes you nauseous, I think. It therefore works as a deterrent to return to drinking after stopping. But you haven't gotten there yet. Also, ancaprosate, or camparal, serves to regulate body chemistry to alleviate cravings for alcohol. It also makes it easier to refrain from drinking alcohol once you have stopped for a period. Now, there is another medicine called topiramate, that's Topamax. That's an anticonvulsant used for epilepsy that's sometimes used off-label to help people stop drinking. Now, herbal remedies, one herbal remedy that's considered possibly effective even by WebMD is the vine that ate the South, kudzu. Research suggests that heavy drinkers or binge drinkers who take kudzu extract consume less beer when given a chance to drink. But the hard data still isn't there to support it as a cure for alcohol dependence. 
Other natural remedies include L-glutamine. L-glutamine is an amino acid that the body naturally produces. Excessive amounts of alcohol can inhibit how L-glutamine is synthesized and absorbed into the body. Adding it back in while trying to stop drinking can help regulate body chemistry and can aid in managing cravings as well as lifting moods. Regular bouts of heavy drinking can deplete the body of thiamine, a B vitamin, which can result in anemia and leave a person feeling fatigued, weak, depressed, and unfocused. Taking a B vitamin complex can aid in diminishing cravings, increasing energy, and maybe focus. All of these need to be taken while being monitored by a qualified health professional. Now, having said all that, your first goal is cutting back on your drinking. These recommendations are from the National Institute of Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism, and they suggest the following steps. Put it in writing. Make a list of the reasons why you should cut back on your drinking, such as feeling healthier, sleeping better, improving your relationships. Seeing what the benefits are in writing can actually motivate you. Set a goal. Set a limit on how much you're going to drink. The recommended guidelines are no more than one standard drink per day for women as well as men 65 and older, and no more than two per day for men under 65. Your doctor can help you determine what's a good first step for you. Keep a diary of your drinking. For three to four weeks, keep track of every time you have a drink. Include information about what and how much you drank, as well as where you were. It's good to know what these patterns are, and having to write it down sometimes may get you to skip a drink or two. Don't keep alcohol in your house. Now, that's going to be a tough one, but having no alcohol at home is an obvious way to limit your drinking. It means you have to go somewhere else to drink, and sometimes it might just not be worth it to you. Drink slowly. Now, if you're going to drink, sip your drink. Drink a big glass of water maybe before having another alcoholic drink, and never drink on an empty stomach. So these are things that are pretty important to do. Now, once you get a little further along, you might consider picking an alcohol-free day. See how you feel physically and emotionally without alcohol in your life for a day. That's after you've cut down for a while. One thing I think you really need to watch for is peer pressure. There are people that are going to offer you drinks, so you have to practice ways to say no politely. You don't have to drink just because others are, and you shouldn't feel obligated to accept every drink that you're offered. It may be tough, but stay away from people who encourage you to drink. you got to steer clear of not only that, but people in places that make you want to drink. If you associate drinking with certain events, like holidays or vacations, develop a plan for managing them in advance. Monitor your feelings. When you're worried, lonely, or angry, are you tempted to reach for a drink? You want to try to cultivate new healthy ways to cope with that kind of stress. So in other words, you want to figure out ways to keep busy. You want to take a walk every day, go to the library. You can have a place all to yourself, probably. You want to consider maybe volunteer work or maybe find a new hobby or maybe revisit an old one. Okay, I'll admit that not all of these steps may work for you, but some of them might. And what do you have to lose? And don't be afraid to ask for support. Cutting down on your drinking is tough, but... Be persistent. Most people who successfully cut down or stop drinking altogether do so only after several attempts. You probably will have setbacks. That's okay. Don't let them keep you from reaching your long-term goal. It's an ongoing effort, and I'm rooting for you. This is Joe Alden, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health and good times or bad. Thanks for listening. Hey, please consider supporting our mission by getting some of the quality medical kits, individual supplies, and personal protection gear available at store.doomandbloom.net. Thanks.
So in addition to what Bone said, when I when I first read this email, my, my immediate response was to, to forward it to Bones and immediately respond before I even heard back uh, from, from Doc. And I said, it sounds to me like you might need to get professional assistance here. This is an unhealthy level of drinking. And, uh, you know, you're, you get one liver. And uh, getting a transplant is not a small thing, and it doesn't always work. And if the reason you need one is because you blew your liver up with booze, it's really hard, if not impossible at times, to, to, to get get to the, the part of the line where you get one. Um, and there's good reason for that, because they're worried that you'll do it again. Um, the email came back. It's very hard for me to, to even ask for help. He was very appreciative that I didn't like crap on him or anything. Just quit, you know, stuff like that, because that's not how that always works. Um, and two concerns with getting involved in any kind of a program would be one, never, ever, ever drinking again. And for someone that enjoys imbibing, that's that's a daunting thing to think about. But it might be necessary. Some people um, reach a point in their life where they 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 abuse this substance too long, and it's really the only way that they can ever be okay again. I never was doing what he's doing, and I never got to a point where like beer doesn't work anymore or anything. That's that's uh, increased tolerance, and uh, it's it's kind of mid stage in the way to end stage when you get to a point where I'm not talking about you can drink more than the average person or whatever. That that's normal when your tolerance goes really really high because uh, you've been shocking your system for that long. The next thing that happens is your tolerance wanes, and when your tolerance starts waning, that's when your liver's failing. So I feel that this is a place for professional intervention, but I don't know this person, and I also don't know if they'll do it even if I say that. So I will say that when I was decided I needed to lose weight, I also decided I was drinking too much. And I realized very quickly how habitual, not addictive habit, but habitual. I'm done with work, I'm going to have a drink, right? I'm going to have dinner, I'm going to have a drink. Take a walk around the property, have a drink. And I got to the point where it was just having a drink in my hand. And if you put a drink in a hand of an old soldier, he's going to drink it. No matter what it is. Could be water, could be tea, could be booze. It's going to get drank. And it's going to get drunk faster than most people drink. Just the consumption speed, right? If you sit down and we're drinking freaking LaCroix sodas, you'll see I'll drink three of those to your one as well. Just like I would if we were drinking beer for most people. And so that's what I actually went to was LaCroix sparkling waters. And whenever I wanted to drink, I just drank one. And I went for, when I went on my keto journey, I went for six months hardly drinking anything at all, right up until the workshop where we drank more alcohol than people should be allowed to drink, I think. And it was a four-day party, and it wasn't, wasn't. I kind of went right back to that pattern again and with no problems. This is a hard one for me to, to make a recommendation other than get professional help under the circumstances. But if you're not going to then that's what I would advise, is find some substance to consume that's harmless. You know, LaCroix is basically water with some flavor and some bubbles in it. There's not even any calories in it. And, no, you're, it's not going to solve the, the craving, but it'll solve the habit. And then I would say this. If you can't quit, then you need help. That's how simple that is. If you can't stop, then you need help. Because that means you do not have control anymore. So you can give it one more try of doing it on your own. And if you can, you can. And if you can't, you can't. Then you need to figure out 
how much of this issue is psychological with the, 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 the trauma that you endured with losing a loved one. Because if you quit drinking and you don't solve the emotional and psychological issue that led to it, if that's what indeed led to it, then all you are is a dry drunk. And if you are only a dry drunk, all that means is that you're going to go back. And a lot of times when people go back as a dry drunk, they go worse than they ever were. So I want to give you hope that if you want to do this on your own, you may be able to. But I also want you to accept the fact that if you try and you can't, then you need to, to immediately ratchet that up and ask for help and don't be afraid to do so. One of our favorite long-term listeners uh, to TSP a long time ago took this walk, and it saved his life. And that was John from West Virginia. And uh, if it's not something that's beneath John from West Virginia, it's not beneath you either, man. All right, with that, let's go ahead and uh, take another one. That's, that's the best I can do because I'd rather give an alternative – not as a preference, but as you got to do something. Uh, next up, Mike and Sue Lapriz on homeschool discipline when we have misbehavior problems during school time. This is Michael and Sue Lapriz with HaloBySue.com, designing the life you'd love to live for the expert counsel. Hey, Jack. Hey, TSB community. Today's question comes off of MeWe, and the question is, what approaches to discipline do homeschooling parents take, if any, when bad behavior occurs during schooling. So the first thing I would ask is uh, to look in the mirror and look <laughs> at our behavior as parents. Um, in all seriousness, uh, the first thing that I would tell you to do is think about this. As a parent, are you trustworthy? Are you consistent? And do you have a pattern that you stay on? And the most important thing is, is even when things are bad, do your children know that you are their safe place? So one of our children at the age of 11, we had an incident. He got really upset um, and he ran away and he started running down the road. We live out in the country. He could run for a long time to get before he got to another house. But he started running down the road and eventually he turned around and walked back home. And we asked him, where were you going? And he says, I don't know. But he came back because we were the safest thing that he ever knew. Yeah, we'd had him for a year, and he'd had a really rough time, and running off had been a solution. And he did realize that we were his safe place. We were the safest place for him. So one of the things we've learned about children, because we're old, and we have, I just want to remind you, we have 10 kids. Our oldest is 33, and our youngest is 4. And we've gotten them in bunches. We have four biological kids. Then we adopted three kids 12 years ago. And right now they're 13, 14, and 21. And then two years ago we got three little brothers that are now four, five, and six. And um, kids don't always know that what they're doing is wrong, mostly because as parents we're inconsistent. We'll tell them not to do something, but only sometimes. And it'll only upset us because we're already upset about something else. So you have to really ask yourself, is this a rule? And one of the best tools that we've used is the book of logical consequences, where we have a notebook and in it, it has different pages. And at the top of each page, there is something that we've agreed as a family that nobody in the family likes. I do not like being slapped in the face. Ironically, neither do any of my children. Great. Somebody has a problem with that. It goes in the book. When you break that rule, 
your name goes on the list. Because the other thing we've learned about children is they don't know how long or how often they've been breaking the rules. And it's like, it's the end of the week, and you did this 10 times. You, we already talked about nobody likes their face being slapped. So there's no discipline or punishment as we're learning these things, but then you come up with a consequence for that behavior. And it could be timeout or it could be a spanking. I know Jack's opposed to spanking, but having 10 kids, um, we found if you're very selective in your spanking and super careful when you use it, it's a good last resort. When you're saying spanking, you mean literally one spank. Literally a one spank. That's it. Yes. Uh, And that ends generally before they're six years old. Yeah. So this book has also taught our kids to imagine that they get in trouble more than everyone else. And it's like, well, yes, you do. But now you know why. Because your name is in this book more than anyone else's on every page. And it was really an eye-opener to one of our kids who thought we didn't like them. They didn't think it was their behavior, and it was a great way to show that. Yeah. We're not picking on you. Yeah, and different kids have different behavior as well, right? So we right. have we have two kids that are terrible at interrupting. Oh, my They'll gosh. They'll walk into a room, and they're going to interrupt no matter who's in the room. They come and interrupt. Yeah. So that's the issue that we have to work with their behavior that we're trying to work yeah, on. Yeah, and it would help if their dad figured it out. <laughs> <laughs> so rules are there for to help your children develop, right? It's not rules because they annoy you. They're rules because we want them to become... Civil. Uh, so uh, our four-year-old is a great example. Uh, we've got a lot of Legos and Duplos. We've been parenting for 33 years, and we've collected a large amount of those items. And Mike has the habit of sometimes of emptying them all out. And when he does that, I'll go to him and I'll say, you are being such a four-year-old, so we need to clean this up. And then my job is to help him clean and show him how to do it. Um, there are times when it's not as big a mess, and I'm going to ask him to clean it by himself. Yeah, we're talking about it, he could do it in five minutes, but it takes 45 minutes because he has to lay on the floor whining about cleaning up his own mess. But as a patient parent, you can just tell him, that's fine, Mike, take all day. Or clean up quickly because we're having cookies and watching a movie downstairs. So do you want to join us and have cookies? Yeah. So rewards are better than punishment. Yes. Yeah, so think in terms less of discipline punishment and more in terms of discipline as training. So the Oxford Dictionary defines discipline as the practice of training people to obey rules or a code of behavior using punishment to correct disobedience. So, and the word punishment, the definition is the infliction of imposition of a penalty as retribution for an offense. Really don't like that in terms of relationships. Yeah, so for us, discipline is training your kids to live in your family and to live in society. It is not enough that you like your kid the way they are. That is not good for them. You need to teach them discipline so that other people like them. Unless you're planning on them living with you the rest of their life and you're going to support them, then, you know, do whatever you want. But speeding tickets are a penalty for breaking the law. It's a spanking for me. It is a big wake-up call for me. And when I get a ticket, then I use my cruise control for like a year and a half. And then I don't. And then I get a ticket. And I'm really good for a year and a half. And so that is a wake-up call for me. It's a discipline that is really a punishment. And um, I know Michael would say that I could just like not get tickets like he does. But that's not what I do. So anyways, during school time for our little guys, 
I don't discipline them during school time. If they're not behaving, they're done. We're having fun. We're playing. We've got manipulatives. We've got all kinds of activities, painting, fun stuff. If they're not behaving, they're done. And they can go outside and play. They can do whatever they want. But you have to respect the school table where we do our schoolwork or wherever we're doing our activity. And then they can come back the next day and really enjoy it. We found that like Mondays have never been a good day for school. And I have to wake up with a lot more patience on Monday to say we're coming back from the weekend and let's get back on our weekly pattern. And for the older kids, it's it's a lot different. So I'm working with the, the, the teenagers. I happen to teach chemistry. Uh, but during school, uh, it is really what is the misbehavior, right? If they're not getting their work done, they're the ones who are going to be embarrassed when they're in class on Tuesdays with their other students and they're not ready. Uh, but the other thing is they have a checklist. It's not my checklist. It's not our checklist. It's their checklist of the things that they need to do. So we don't worry about our kids not getting their work done because in order to do all the other things in the house, you want to make cookies, you want to play video games, get your work done, show me your checklist, show me what you've gotten done. And we have one kid who struggles with memory work unless he has to memorize to play video games. So I add to his every day. You have to remember the first line if you want to play video games. You have to remember the first two lines. So every day I'm adding one line to his because it is a struggle, but I found a way to encourage him to get his work done because that's my job is to teach them how to get their work done. So during COVID, we're three weeks in. My kids and I are going for a walk around the neighborhood over to my mom's house. And one of the grandmas who's now suddenly homeschooling her grandkids says, how do you get them to do their work? And I told her. I own all the snacks, all the electronics, and all the fun. You just do. And that's the way it is. So this has been Michael and Sue Lucrese with HaloByZoo.com reminding you that your child's misbehavior is a learning opportunity for all of you. Thanks, Jack. I'll just leave the discussion on any level of physical discipline for another day and just let it be what it is. On the writing it down, I love that idea. Because it makes it concrete and it leads to a lack of, no, I didn't. No, that didn't happen. No, here it is. Um, I like that. I like the idea that we're going to teach the rule before we enforce the rule so that the rule is understood and known. And I think maybe one of the things about the rule that needs to be known is not just that the rule is there, but why the rule is there. And I think that gets covered with their methodology. I always try to do that. Uh, now with my grandchildren, because we have them here so often, that when they're in trouble, not just what you're in trouble for, but why that's a problem. But I also think this is interesting, the way that this question came in, and I didn't really hear Mike or Sue pick up on it at all. The question wasn't, how do I deal with children misbehaving? It was, how do I deal with children misbehaving during homeschool time? And I think that it is worth like queuing in on that if that is a legitimate Concern, And what I mean by that is if you have the same sort of disciplinary issues during school time and during not school time, and the only reason it's bothering you now is because it's disruptive to, you know, quote-unquote, school time, then general discipline approach is probably the way to go. If these problems only exist during, you know, quote-unquote, school time, then we need to evaluate why. We need to be like the child that way ourselves and say, but why? But why? But why? 
And we need to not only rely on the child for the answer. We are the thinking, fully adult, fully mature person. We need to figure it out. One of the things we figured out with my grandson, and it wasn't so much a behavior issue rather than a performance issue, was he's blowing through his schoolwork. He likes to blow through his schoolwork. Most of the schoolwork is read this and answer that. you know, And it's a multiple-choice question or fill in a blank, write a sentence, whatever, and you're done. All of a sudden, we were getting to where we were having problems, and this seemed ridiculous that we were having to force him to work again when we had made so much progress. But we noticed really quickly, we were quite astute to this as being adults, that children don't like extra work, and we noticed that whenever he had a writing assignment that was like writing a story, writing a paragraph, that's when the, pro that's when the resistance came. And we had a flat discussion with him. The reason that this is hard for you isn't that it's not easy for you to do. It's because you don't want to do it and one way or another it is going to get done now you can take right back to what worked in the beginning you can take all day to do it that's fine and you can lose all that free time in your day or you can knuckle down do the work and get it done I also had a discussion with him because we've, we, we've seen him a few times pretend to be me which is one of the coolest things in the world you can ever have a kid or a grandkid do is pretend to be you and pretend to do your job Well, we have a couple videos of him getting behind the camera and pretending to be me podcasting. And I talked to him about that, and I said, look, you want, if you want to do things like that, what you have to be able to do is communicate with people. And learning to write is learning to communicate. And if you want to be able to get the things you want in life from people, you need to learn how to be a better communicator. Like, do you want to be able to get things? Well, yeah. Okay, well, this is how you get things. I know it doesn't seem like that now, but when you get really good at this, You get really good at explaining yourself. You get really good at telling stories. You get really good at being compelling. Then you become one of those people in life that are able to get what you want when others fail. See, that, see that's, that's, that's a motivational thing to that kid. And that's the other thing I'm going to add to this. You need to be motivational, not in general, but unique to the individual. This is why schools fail. They, because to be fair, they can't. How can I be a teacher in a class with 32 children and be unique in my motivation to each one of them. Because I know he cares about the things I mentioned. The next kid I'm dealing with who doesn't want to do a writing assignment because it's extra work might not give two shits about that. So I have to figure out what they do give two shits about, and then I have to make those two things connect together. So if it's a general disciplinary problem, and you're only worried about it because it's during school time, then you might be the problem because you're not enforcing those rules anytime except when it's inconveniencing you. So then you need to even out where we are, we are consistent with that discipline. If it is only during that time that the behavior occurs, then we need to address what about the schoolwork is causing the child a problem so that they're resisting and rebelling. Is it pure laziness like it was with Braylon? Or are they actually struggling and rather than struggle, they prefer to be disruptive? Because a lot of times when everything's easy except a few things then they want to be disruptive because they don't want to power through that pain. And explaining the reason behind powering through, the benefit to them in some way that's personal to them, is probably the best thing that you can do. Those are my thoughts on that one. Next up, we have Chef Keith Snow on low-carb sides for Thanksgiving. Hey, it's Chef Keith Snow with HarvestEating.com and FoodStorageFeast.com. Wanted to throw out a couple of quick and easy ideas to put some lower-carb side dishes on your Thanksgiving table. Now, Jack actually threw this idea my way. Um, so 
I will take him up on it and offer a few easy things. There's many of you out there that are watching your weight and losing weight by following a lower carb diet. I've definitely seen it work for me in the past. Um, although, um, to get the best results for me, I need to lower the carbs, but also be doing, um, some weightlifting. That's, uh, or, or body weight exercise exercises. That's what really makes me shed the pounds. But anyway, let's get into a couple of dishes here. And these are super simple and they're not really all that typical, um, on a Thanksgiving table, but we'll go with it. So the first one is garlic butter mushrooms. And this has some uh, Parmesan cheese on it as well. And this is a super easy dish, and it doesn't really make sense to make it too far ahead. So just before you're going to sit down, and depending upon the size of your family, this is going to serve about, I would say, four people, five people maximum with one pound of mushroom. So if you have more people, you can double the recipe. And I'm going to provide it to Jack um, in the show notes, but... Boy, you really don't need it. It's so darn easy. So look for baby Bella mushrooms. Those are basically little mini portobello mushrooms. Um, you can use button or white mushrooms too. It really doesn't matter, but I like the look of these um, baby Bellas. They're going to be the little brown ones. Now, with all mushrooms that you buy in the store, you can either buy them, and you want these whole, by the way. You can buy them in a little blue containers covered with plastic, or some stores will have them loose. Um, no matter which way you choose, you will need to wash these. Now, um, the old wives' tale is that you need to sit there with a little brush and brush each one off. If you want to do that, that's great. Uh, what I do is I toss all of them into a colander, and I'll throw them in the sink and put the sprayer on my sink and just spray them off while I'm shaking the colander, and you're going to get a lot of dirt off of those mushrooms. Then I'll take them and just put them in a kitchen towel real quick and kind of shake them around and, and dry off most of the water. They're not going to soak in the water. Um, so will they absorb some? Maybe, but we're going to cook it right out anyway, so don't worry about it. So in a large skillet, what you're going to do is melt one stick of butter and um, two teaspoons of your favorite oil. And for me, that would be an extra virgin olive oil. Then I'm going to go in with four cloves of minced garlic and the mushrooms. And you're going to cook this on about a medium heat, tossing it frequently so you don't burn the garlic. And what's going to happen is a lot of the water that's in most mushrooms, because they are very high water content uh, vegetables, you're going to continue to cook them and they're going to start to soften up a bit. After about 10 or 12 minutes of tossing, you're going to season them up with a little bit of salt and pepper. And then you're going to add in a teaspoon of fresh thyme that's minced and also uh, about two tablespoons of minced parsley. Um, toss it all together again and then put it um, into your serving dish and then sprinkle about half a cup of high-quality grated Parmesan cheese on there. That will sort of melt on the top. And what you're left with is something really yummy. I think uh, yourself and your guests will love these garlic, butter, and Parmesan mushrooms. And then the second one is, of course, the for me, I mean, potatoes are, are my weakness, and I want to eat a lot of potatoes at Thanksgiving time. Um, or anytime I've got, you know, meatloaf or, um, 
things like that. And of course, I feel very stuffed afterwards and very heavy with all the carbs. So you can definitely use cauliflower and, and this is not a, um, you know, earth shattering. Oh my gosh, you can make a cauliflower mash. But here's the tip that I'll give you. Instead of buying the riced cauliflower that you get frozen in the store, that is going to be difficult to, and I've used that plenty of times, um, sometimes to make a fried rice, like a low carb fried rice. It does work, but it's difficult to get that sort of frozen texture and flavor out of it. So start with a, a whole head of cauliflower. And what you're going to do, of course, is remove um, any leaves that are on there and a good bit of the stem, not all of it. Um, then break it up into florets or just large pieces. And don't worry if you do have some stem. You just don't want the green leafy pieces. So this is going to go in a steamer. Instead of steaming it with all water, what we're going to do is steam it with a half a cup of water and a half a cup of whole milk. And so you put it in there, cover it, and steam it. And you want to time the steam so that when you first put it on the stove, it's going to take a few minutes for that to start steaming. Once you see it steaming, put the cauliflower on top of it with the lid and do it for 15 minutes. So when 15 minutes comes, turn it off, wait about three minutes, and then remove the cauliflower. It should still be in the sort of colander portion of the steamer. Move that aside. And then in the liquid, which should be remaining, you're going to take two tablespoons of potato flakes. Now, this is definitely not um, a low-carb ingredient, but there's so little of it in here, and you're not going to eat this entire bowl of mashed potatoes, so you're probably going to add maybe two or three carbs per person, really nothing, and this is going to give it a much better texture. So two tablespoons of potato flakes, just toss them on top of your steaming liquid, and then take a whisk and whisk it in. You don't really need to cook it much. Just whisk it in for a minute until it's all well combined. Then you're going to go to your food processor and you'll take your steamed cauliflower. And remember, this should be um, very fork tender. If it's if it's still a little bit hard, you're not going to get the texture you want. So before you remove it, you know, take it and pierce, you know, a piece of the stem with uh, the tip of a knife or a fork, and it should be very tender. So all of this goes into your food processor, and then you're going to add that thickened steaming liquid. That's the, the milk water with a couple tablespoons of potato flakes, a little bit of kosher salt and some black pepper, and then you're going to let the um, food processor do the work and really want to process these down. And I would scrape the bowl with a, a spatula at least two times during this process to make sure you're getting it completely smooth. And once it's smooth... I would put it into, I use a glass bowl, like a, a glass serving bowl. I'll put it into the bowl, and then I will um, whisk or take a spoon and put two tablespoons, and this is room temperature, uh, unsalted or salted butter. It's up to you. And I'll also take um, a half a cup of room temperature white um, extra sharp cheddar cheese. Now, for this, I'd like... Something like a Cabot cheese um, or even a, a Canadian white cheddar cheese. And sometimes if you go to a place like Costco, a lot of Costco members out there, in the cheese section you can find Cabot at C-O-B-O-T. That's how you spell it. And it's in a black um, wax kind of case. And that's going to be very, very sharp cheese. And you can use other cheeses here too. Certainly a good aged Gruyere would rock in this. But... 
Um, at the end, you take that, and the cheese has got to be room temperatures. It has to be shredded already. Toss it in there with the butter, mix it all together, and then again, taste it for salt and pepper. You added a little before you processed it, but now is the time to make sure it tastes right. And uh, once that's all put together and tasting delicious, I cover it with plastic wrap, and then I would put it over a little double boiler on a very low simmer, and that will um, stay nice and hot before your um, Thanksgiving service. But this is a super delicious, low-carb thing that, boy, is it so close to mashed potatoes. I don't even think you'll miss them. And it's a lot easier because you don't have to sit there and peel all those potatoes. So give this a try. You're going to love it with um, that extra sharp white cheddar cheese in there. really makes a great addition. So with that, I hope this gives you a couple of ideas for a lower-carb Thanksgiving. Uh, I wanted to also mention for you out there that like the Harvest Eating Spices, if you visit harvesteating.com and click on the store, you'll see the spices we have in stock. And it's been difficult this year with COVID to get the ingredients I need to make my spices. Um, I could have gotten the um, cheap sort of... Um, commodity grown spices and mix those in, but I just, uh, I'd rather not have them. Um, so I had to wait to get the good kind that I use, which are contract grown organic. And when those came in stock, um, we've mixed up some of our most popular ones, which is the Montana steak. Uh, there's about 15 jars in the store. We have our Greek chicken seasoning. We have some um, Carolina barbecue seasoning. We have some seafood seasoning as well. So do check out the Harvest Eating store. Also, those of you that have preps, you should learn how to cook with those preps. You can do that by going to foodstoragefeast.com. If you use the coupon code JACK in checkout, you'll save 50 bucks off a lifetime enrollment to that course. There's over 60 videos in there showing you how to cook with your preps. So uh, with that, I hope everybody has a great weekend in TSP land. Continue to call in questions for me, and I'll answer them as quick as I can. Thank you so much. Take care. So first I'll say in general for low-carb things, a couple tablespoons here or there of the conventional thing mixed into the unconventional thing is an idea that I love, and I use it in other ways. For instance, I've talked about how I will do uh, low-carb fish batter, and, and someday I'll, I'll, I'll give you the actual, I'll give you an actual recipe, um, because it changes based on what I have available. I'll use things like pecan meal, or walnut meal, or coconut flour, or whatever I have, anything that I can get the ratios right to where it's not high carb. But taking something like two or three tablespoons, and I'll use Parmesan cheese, and I use ground up pork rinds and stuff like that. Like I use all kinds of different ways to create a crispy, crunchy batter for fried fish. And the last time I made this for some friends, I had two huge plates of fillets breaded up, and I fried the first plate because I didn't know if everybody would want two plates. And everybody was like, more. Okay, I'll go make the other plate. So you can do this. But what I did with that one is there's this uh, Everglades fish fry, which is one of the, my, I mentioned that on the show with the fishing guide yesterday. One of my favorite, if you're going to use just straight up fried like and just have the carbs that I, I love. Throwing two tablespoons of that into there. The last time I did it, when I did the math, it came out to... I, I'd cut it smaller. That's one of my little hacks is cut your, your fish fillets smaller when you fry them because you get a better ratio and they get less greasy that way. But if you had used it to a whole 
like half of a fish, like a, a full fillet, it was one carb. The batter would make one carb to, to the, the amount that equaled one full fish fillet. So, you know, two full fish fillets is quite a bit of food for two carbs. And, and that little bit of binder was there, so I love that. Now, the negative. On the whole, rice cauliflower, frozen, off-taste, whatever. I don't know what the hell he's talking about. I have no idea what he's talking about. I use that rice cauliflower all the time. It is so much more convenient. Costco sells it organic in giant bags that are basically like three bags inside it, each that is a great size for a dinner portion for a family. Um, it's cheap. It actually, in my opinion, if you go to Costco and you get that big bag of rice cauliflower, you can't buy fresh cauliflower and do it yourself for that price. And there is, I don't know what flavor he's talking about. Uh, maybe you're a sommelier and you can taste the offness to a one hundredth of one percent or something like he can or whatever. I have no no flipping idea what he's talking about. I'll give you a quicker side dish using cauliflower if you want one. Good for Thanksgiving, good for any time. Make cauliflower mac and cheese using the rice cauliflower. When you cook the cauliflower, cook it in like to you know the, a, a good size amount, like a skillet full. Take that frozen stuff out of the freezer. You can do it while it's frozen if you want to, but it's better to let it defrost and let it drain a little bit and get some of the water off it. Maybe that's the problem he has by not taking that step. Um, but if you if you throw it in a colander, let it drain as it melts, as it defrosts. Give it a couple hours to do that. Um, even a little bit of salt on it will pull a little bit more out and give it a little more firm texture. Just a little bit. Just a little sprinkle of salt mix it up after it defrosts. Now, throw it in a skillet with a half of a stick of butter. And begin to saute it with that. Then add about two to four tablespoons, depending on how much you have, of chicken stock. Right? This is a great recipe anyway. You can season this any way you like. Cook it then until you cook off the moisture and it dries up a bit. And then you can do anything with it. You can, you can take it to a Mexican rice. You can take it to a jambalaya. You could mix it up with pork and make a boudin substitute. I mean, you could do anything with this stuff. And whatever flavors you want in, like I usually throw in that same mix. I'll, when I throw the butter in, I'll throw a big handful of chopped garlic in there. You know, but whatever you want to do with it. But if you want to do that first and then drain it well, so that, cause it's, you know, still going to have some moisture to it. And then do a mac and cheese, however you like mac and cheese, like that sharp white cheddar. Hell yeah. But when you do that, throw a big handful of bacon in it. And if you're going to do that, cook the bacon first. Leave the bacon grease in the pan, still add the butter and put it back into there when you cook it. Right? Take half the bacon and cook it into the, 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 the rice cheese mixture. Then take it out into something that you're going to put into the oven to bake like baked macaroni and cheese. And put the bacon on the top and do another sprinkling. It doesn't have to be coated now. It's the whole thing's cheese. You've made it into a mac and cheese, right? But maybe even a different flavor of cheese, a different type of cheese on the top in with that bacon. And I'll tell you what it tastes like. Is It tastes like, like the best bacon and grits you ever ate. And I know some people like, grits? No, if that's how you feel about grits, whoever made you grits did it wrong. If it tasted like cream of wheat, it wasn't good grits, right? This is like high-end restaurant grits, right? When you go to, like, uh, Riata here in Fort Worth, and they do, like, the, 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 the smoky bacon grits with the elk sausage on it. It's freaking amazing, right? That is that is a really easy way to go. As far as the mashed potato thing, I'll try it, and I'll even do it the way he said, because it would be nice to have a mashed potato substitute. 
I don't know that I'm going to agree that there's a difference in starting with a fresh head of cauliflower versus the rice, though. I just, I don't know what the hell he's talking about. It's up to you guys. All right, so this is, it's time for my segment today. And um, this is one that I find really, really interesting. People have been asking me about it ever since Coinbase announced it. So Coinbase has announced a crypto card, right? And for a lot of people, it was kind of a, meh, whatever. So what? We already have that. There are lots of vendors right now that will offer like a MasterCard or Visa debit card that you can get. And then you can spend your crypto anywhere that you want to, even if they don't take crypto. As long as they take Visa, MasterCard, whatever you know brand it ends up being. Visa and MasterCard are the two big ones. The difference is the way those work is you basically have an account with a wallet address attached to the card. And so you would have to log into an account somewhere or send money, you know, send crypto from a crypto wallet to this card. And basically it's like a prepaid Visa or MasterCard. So that also involves some time to get that done. And then it involves erosion of the value of the crypto on the float is one way to think about it. What do I mean by that? I mean, I want to buy this thing. And Bitcoin is at an all-time high, and I've decided to spend some of my Bitcoin, and this is a really great time to do it, but while my card's empty, and this, this place does not take crypto, so now I've got to move the crypto. The Coinbase will work directly from your account. That's the big difference here. So you have... $10,000 in Bitcoin, let's say, in, in Coinbase. You see this uh, wonderful diamond ring you want to buy your wife, and you think, you know what, I'm going to spoil her, and I got this crypto money. So you whip it out, and it's $2,950, and you throw that card down, and boom, it comes straight out. Great. Okay, here's my multiple levels of concern and where I think this is going and why I think it's important to understand. Coinbase is playing nice with the government, not because they hate you, but because they would like to stay in business, and they know that Ira Ramon Sancia can put them out of business if they don't play ball. Who's Ira Ramon Sancia? The initials are IRS. You figured out. I call Ira Ramon Sancia the biggest gangster the world has ever known. So Ira is like, hey, look, you do this or we put you out of business. So they're like, okay. So they have fought back against the government extensively, and Coinbase does not, I'm going to say this again, Coinbase does not, 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 willy-nilly just give all your information about what you do with cryptocurrency to the federal government. They do not do that. They don't. They don't, and they never have. There's been two court cases, the IRS one, where information about Coinbase customers was released to them, and it was contingent upon certain time periods and certain amounts and numbers of transactions. So unless you were significantly making significant transactions, we're talking $20,000 worth of transactions, etc., within Coinbase, that information didn't go to the IRS. It doesn't mean it never will. When you have a card that's running through the banking system that runs against your crypto, it becomes auditable. Because now the third party, because, well, it's Coinbase directly. no. Visa and MasterCard are not Coinbase. So somewhere in this transaction, it becomes a banking transaction with a crypto exchange attached to it. PayPal is doing the same thing. Nobody has it yet, but PayPal is, that's exactly what PayPal is going to do. You're going to be able to spend and receive crypto 
using PayPal. And you'll be able to hold crypto in PayPal. That's the information we have now anyway. It looks very similar, if not the same, to what Coinbase is doing. Except I don't think PayPal is on the way to becoming an exchange. Maybe directly to U.S. dollar. Who knows what currencies PayPal may have one Bitcoin, or it may have like Bitcoin, Bitcoin Cash, Ethereum, like a big three or something. It may have a half a dozen. I don't see you being able to accept Stellar Lumens or Arc or something like that with PayPal. I see it being a, a finite number and maybe one. Additionally, inside Coinbase, I have a feeling that your crypto card will only draw from one, maybe two cryptos. It is no secret, if you look at how things are done with Coinbase, that they prefer transactions be done in Bitcoin, and they charge the most for them. If, if you want to get into cryptocurrency right now, and you go to my website, there's a little banner, and I appreciate this if you do it, and you'll get some from free, free crypto too, uh, for Bitcoin. Uh, but what you do is you click on that banner, and you go to Coinbase, you set up an account if you don't have one yet. When you fund your account with $100 worth of Bitcoin, they will give you $10 worth of Bitcoin. And they will give me $10 worth of Bitcoin for referring you. All right. If you use my banner, go to Coinbase, and fund it with $120 worth of Bitcoin cash, you get nothing and I get nothing. If you do it with Ethereum, you get nothing and I get nothing. Other than you, know, you get your money, you get your crypto, whatever. It works. But until you fund it with at least $100 in Bitcoin... I get nothing and you get nothing as far as that incentive. What does that tell you? That that's their preferred crypto for you to use. For what I don't know why. I'm not going to pretend I know, but that's so I think it's highly probable that that crypto card will only draw against your Bitcoin, your BTC balance. Meaning if you have money in Ethereum, you're going to have to initiate a trade within your Coinbase account over to Bitcoin. Am I sure of that? No, I'm not. No, I'm not. But there has to be some preferential hierarchy. Because if I walk in to Joe Blow's Coffee Shack, and I'm picking up drinks for everybody, we're all getting lattes and shit like that, so it's a pretty big bill, it's like 25 bucks in coffee, and I throw down my Coinbase Visa card. How does Coinbase know if I'm holding four different currencies, which one to charge? Now, there may be some sort of hierarchy like, Bitcoin first, Ethereum second, and maybe you can set that. I, I see this as being complex. So I see them. the easiest way for them to skin this cat is to just make it one thing. So the problem with that is now I'm going into Coinbase. I'm selling Ethereum. I'm creating a trade. I'm creating a tax consequence. Then I'm spending it as Bitcoin later, creating a second trade, creating another tax consequence. And this is very, very public. I mean, it's not like, whoop, whoop, Ira Ramon, Ira Ramon, Bill made a trade. Bill, It's not that much, but if Ira Ramon looks at Bill, hey, Bill's starting to make too much noise. We don't like Bill no more. Let's see what Bill's up to. There's a lot of audibility there. This is why I much prefer cryptocurrency. Yes, we can use services like Coinbase to get in the game, to buy a few hundred bucks worth, send it to ourselves, learn how it works, start trading it so we can figure out how to make it. But... I prefer to earn my cryptocurrency through exchange of value by selling something to somebody and then to spend it back whenever it makes sense to spend it. And I prefer to do that through services like Ajax Wallet or whatever. People are like, but I don't like Jax. I, I don't care. 
Use whatever you want. I like jacks. It works for me. I've never heard of anybody getting their jacks wallet hacked or anything unless they're stupid and they left like their phone open with it on it or something like that where somebody could just log in and start sending shit. Like that's dumb. That's a, that's a user error, not a product error. Um, but if you want to, I don't care what you want. I don't care. It doesn't matter to me. I have no, like Jax doesn't send Jax. Like it's not because their name and my name are similar, right? J-A-C-K, J-A-X-X. It's, it, that's not it. That's not a thing. They don't spend me money. I don't make, like I get a referral for telling you to use Coinbase. I get nothing from Jax. Those jerks, they give me nothing. Jax a jerk. Jax, it, Jax are jerks, right? Um, I like that it has Shapeshift on board. You can do a lot of currency exchange with no KYC. If you want to buy with capital, like with cash, you can do that with Jax, but then you have to do KYC, right? So I lo like any wallet that lets me just start accepting cryptocurrency. And this is what I think a lot of people that sell stuff for a living do not realize. To start accepting cryptocurrency, the only thing you need is an address. But it would be nice if that address was attached to something that made the currency usable once you got your hands on it. So something like, go, you can go to jax.io, download wallet, or get on your iPhone and go to the App Store, search for J-A-X-X, find the Jax wallet, download it, right? And then within five minutes, you can say, send it here. Give the person an address. If you're standing there face-to-face -face with them, you can open your wallet, show them a QR code, they can scan it with their app and say send. And depending on what currency is and how long the transaction time is, it's done. And it costs you nothing. And that's why I want to steer you that way. Now, the good. PayPal, adopting cryptocurrency. Coinbase, adopting cryptocurrency. I do business in the banking system right now. Now, if I'm going to do crypto, I'd prefer that it be out of the banking system. That's the point. But if somebody wants to spend crypto and they feel more comfortable doing it through PayPal, I'm not going to turn the money down any more than I would turn down 50 United States dollars for an MSB membership. I'm going to view that crypto a little bit different from a, you know, how it, how it fits in the ecosystem of the world and whether Ira Ramon knows about it or not, right? But I'm not going to not take it. Now, what does it do? It increases adoption. The more people that adopt cryptocurrency, the more people want cryptocurrency, the more people that buy cryptocurrency, the higher the value of cryptocurrency goes. If you take that and you couple it with we just had what's known as a halving of Bitcoin, meaning Only half as many are being made now as were prior to it. We're only two years and six months out from the next halving, which is a huge drop in the production. And I always go back to, if you get mainstream adoption, which we are so close to where you might as well say we are there, but if we get mainstream adoption where it becomes relatively easy for the average person with an IRA to say, you know what, I want to hold one Bitcoin in my IRA. Not some futures fund or something like to just literally be able to buy Bitcoin or to buy a Bitcoin fund that literally is Bitcoin. The, the way that SLV literally is silver, right, in an ETF. Like a Bitcoin ETF that's approved for, and I, I think we'll get there because the billionaires want it because they want to play this game. If every single person with an IRA in the United States of America wanted to own a quarter of a Bitcoin, it literally can't happen. It's not possible. It's not, the, there's not enough of them there. And that's when you'll get one of these parabolic spikes in it. So I think it's, a, I'm not, you know, buy, hold, and go to the moon. That's not me. It's never been. But I've, I've been telling you to buy it since I think it was about 14 bucks. 
and I think it's like 13,000 and change today, right? Buying some to hold and then using as well is, is to me, makes a lot of sense. And um, I know a lot of people think, well, the opportunity's over. Okay. Heard that when it was $300. I heard that when it was $600. I heard that when it was $1,200. I heard that when it was $3,000. I heard that when it was $6,000. I've heard it's tulip mania now for over a decade, damn near a decade and a half. You know, do what you want with the information, but if you do want to get started at least, again, I recommend a Jack's wallet or similar, and I I can't give you a easier on-ramp to be able to just buy some, because again, we're talking about a couple hundred bucks here, right? A hundred dollars, 150 bucks, 200 bucks, something like that, to get in the game, Coinbase is your easy on-ramp there, and you're not, you know, they're not going to start investigating you because you bought a hundred dollars worth of Bitcoin. That's that, that's that's just not a thing. And there wouldn't be anything for them to do except you say, "You what are you going to do?" Right? You bought it, you sent it to yourself. You you, you don't owe anything. Did you spend it? No, I sent it to myself. Well, I see two cents here. Yeah, I sent it somewhere else. Can we see it? No. Can you prove you own it? No, I lost the keys. It's it's lost. Can I write it off as a deduction? You see what I'm saying? Like it's too small to worry about. It's too piddly to worry about. Get in the game, and then. As quick as you can, start figuring out what can I do that others will pay me for this with. And so these cards, these new accounts, these new options, fine. They are what they are. They will help the overall ecosystem and the adoption. But I think it's it's the point now where most of the people that are astute with cryptocurrency are doing most of their business in coins like Monero that are privacy coins that Ira Ramon can, can't do diddly dick with. And we are moving to a world soon where Monero will look like child's play. I'll just say that. All right. With that, let's go ahead and wrap things up. Already did T-SPAS today, so great deals out there today. Check out the website. Just a little throw in here again for the, 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 the Telegram channel. If you get on my Telegram channel then you are going to make sure that you find out all the juicy inside information before anybody else does. Uh, other than, I guess, social media too, Par Parler and MeWe. If you're on Parler, MeWe, Discord, the Telegram channel, any of those, as soon as it's available, I put it out. But the Telegram channel is on your, you know, your phone like a text message. It pops up. If you get bored with it, you get rid of it. It's, it's easy. And if you're on the channel versus the group, you will only hear from me. Also, if you want to be a member, then you can help support the show, and you can pay in cryptocurrency. It'd be really cool. I had uh, one person today uh, switch. He's been a long time. The guy's been a customer forever. I looked at his customer record. I don't remember exactly how long, but I mean, it's like eight years, and he switched to paying with Litecoin today. No problem. Gave him an address, sent the Litecoin, added a year to his account, done. And had another guy pay in Bitcoin today. So that's really cool. I don't get out every day or anything, but... It's always cool to see you guys using cryptocurrency for MSB because that is you and I doing business without a third party and you and I acting as our own bank. That's really cool. Okay, with that, let's talk about song of the day today. I said it's the end of the, year, the month, didn't I? But you know what Saturday is? Halloween! Yeah, it's not a big holiday for me because, you know, well, it's COVID, so there's probably less trick-or-treating anyway, but like... When you live on a, on a gated property and like your whole house is surrounded by a fence, kids don't come around and it's just not the same. Back when I lived in uh, Arlington, we were in a typical neighborhood on the end of a cul-de-sac, man, and we would I would go all out. I'd have a smoke machine going, and my wife had all these decorations and shit, you know. We always made sure it was really decked out so when the kids were walking and they were like, 
is it worth walking to the end of that cul-de-sac? They knew like, hey, if these people have it out like that, they're going to they're gonna throw down with the candy, man. So I dig Halloween. I just don't get much out of it anymore. Um, but John Adam came up with a great song for something like Halloween for us today. And it's not the theme from Friday the 13th, which would have been kind of cool. That When I was a kid, dude, that music scared the flying crap out of me, man. After I saw that for the first the original Halloween, the first one. Uh, not Halloween, uh, Friday the 13th, first one of those ever, I would be walking like by myself in the woods by our apartments and like hear, hear it in my head like, oh, he's going to get me. Uh, this song's not quite that level of spooky, but it, if you really listen to the words, it kind of is. What it sounds like is to me, and it, it's not real clear if it is, but it sounds to me like this chick had like a boyfriend die. And maybe maybe it happened when it wasn't quite good and he's still there that's what i get out of it it's called paranormal it was off an album called paranormal and for alice cooper it's relatively new it was released in uh 2017 and the thing about alice cooper is aren't there like a couple dozen songs we could have pulled from that would have fit a halloween song i mean perfect guy for it but here's a weird thing i'm getting in the christmas spirit so maybe that's part of it maybe i'm delusional here the very first part of this song, and it it shifts in stanza in just the instrumental at some point, and it goes away. It's only the very first part, but that that segment that that riff comes back again later in the song. And there's a lot of creaky Halloweeny shit going on here. But the very you tell me if I'm if I'm smoking dope or something here. Maybe some of Hunter Biden's crack pipe leaked into my head or something. I don't know. It makes me think of Christmas music, specifically Trans-Siberian Orchestra. Now that I said that, I don't think you'd be able to not hear it. With that, hope you enjoy your weekend. It's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast.
condemned to the long, endless night. And I live in the absence.